Hey lunatics, you're listening to Let the Meat Grass, a podcast exploring real food, broken ecosystems, and a better way to live. I'm Austin Williams, your farmer and podcast host. Before I began farming, I was a public school teacher who had grown up in the suburbs of St. Louis. And if you were like me, you had no idea what was real or who to trust when it came to our food. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance you've begun to doubt what huge food corporations are trying to sell you is as healthy as it's cracked up to be. And for good reason. I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, but a farmer whose mission is to heal the land and nourish the people. You see, conventional farms are dying. We've been losing farmers for well over a century now. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. Hey, lunatics. I'm super excited about this episode today. I'm excited because... I get to be optimistic the entire time. That's right. No pessimism, cynicism, groveling, or negativity. I realized after talking to a friend, the last 20 episodes don't reflect what it's like to talk to me in real life. He was like, can you do a positive episode? Yes, in real life and on the farm, I'm a really optimistic guy and that's been missing. So today there won't be a single warning or pronouncement of dread. Just hope and joy because honestly, there is so much to be excited about in the world of good food, both now and in the future. So let me start off by saying that over the last 25 years or so, which is my teeny tiny lifetime, the amount of local, organic, and ethically raised food available to consumers was greater than it had been for the previous 25 years. By and large, Americans have spoken and food producers are listening. We don't want processed food. Our demand is so great that even Walmart has listened. Since 2006, Walmart stores have offered over 400 different USDA-certified organic products. The fact that 91% of its surveyed customers were willing to buy affordable organic food convinced the powers that be at the food behemoth to start offering it at its U.S.-based stores. Only a groundswell of popular support and pressure could have created this. Couple that with the fact that 90% of the U.S. population lives within 10 miles of a Walmart, and access to better quality food went through the roof. Organic food used to be a hippie punchline. Think, no showers plus organic avocados, haha. But now A-list actor Keanu Reeves makes a joke about grass-fed beef in the Netflix film Always Be My Maybe. I mean, it's culturally mainstream. And rightfully so. It's food the way it's supposed to be. Now, I know that organic food guidelines aren't perfect and that some chemicals may still be used, but this is a huge step in the right direction. On a small scale, the news is even more encouraging. For the last 25 years, smaller restaurants and chefs have created a nascent movement loosely called Farm to Fork. The idea revolves around restaurants establishing direct connections with local farms who ethically raise their food. If you consider the staple of a movement's legitimacy, whether or not they have a homecoming festival, there's a festival in, you guessed it, Sacramento, California, that draws 150,000 farm-to-fork lovers over a single week. 
Chefs will sometimes personally go to these farms to check the animal conditions. They'll check the grass quality, they'll stick their hands in the ground and feel the soil. They'll eat fruit or vegetables directly from the plant. And part of the difficulty of harvesting beef, lamb, or pork on a small scale like we do is that customers routinely only want one of the many cuts of meat. They might only want steaks or shanks or bacon, but there is so, so much more to a cow, sheep, or pig than just one cut. It costs us just as much money to raise a KC strip steak as it does for us to raise the liver. You see, we spend money to raise and finish the entire animal, not just the most popular cut of meat that comes from it. Sometimes, farm-to-fork restaurants have a whole animal philosophy. The best ones desire to use every part of an animal, including the organ meats, in their seasonal dishes. That's a huge plus for farmers because we have to raise the entire animal to maturity before we harvest it. It helps to get paid for the entire animal. Since these restaurants depend on the livelihood of their supporting farmers, the two naturally develop a very intimate relationship. If farmers are running high on inventory of something, these restaurants will experiment with crafting seasonal dishes featuring that product in order to move a farmer's inventory faster. Wholesale accounts can be extremely unpredictable for farmers, but once restaurants have proven themselves reliable customers, farmers can even plant certain vegetables or cut different slices of meat per the request of the head chefs. It's a win-win all around. And when we farmers are able to do business with small restaurants and not forced to rely on commodity prices, we can be more shielded from market bumps. Market bumps are what the majority of farmers live and die by. And a recent example was the huge U.S. cheese glut, which tanked prices. It probably slipped under your radar, but it was devastating to U.S. dairy farmers. Now, let me explain why. Farmers have two time zones they have to live in farm time, and real time. In farm time, we always have to be planning ahead. Everything, and I mean everything, in any kind of farming, takes time to grow. From beef to honey, snap peas to dillweed, lamb to bison, everything operates on a timetable. We don't profit for several days, weeks, months, or even years down the road. But we also have to live in real time, just like everyone else. So two years ago, there was a worldwide dairy shortage. U.S. dairy farmers responded by amping up their production. This means they bought more cows, probably on credit, kept more female calves, staggered the herd to calve in the fall and in the spring, and maybe started milking twice a day. This increase didn't happen overnight either. It probably took all of two years to make it happen. But then there was an unexpected drop in cheese demand from China and Russia. These farmers had been planning planning, planning, and farming time, and then got blindsided by real time. It hurts. My heart goes out to them. Selling on the commodity market carries this inherent risk. But when you sell at a local farm-to-fork restaurants, you spread out the risk. Buying directly from farmers helps us withstand some of the global socio-political turmoil that routinely upends the markets these days. There's an incredible restaurant near me in mid-Missouri that practices a whole animal philosophy. It's called the Bard Owl. One of its owners, Ben Parks, has been a loyal customer of ours for several years and operates probably the hippest restaurant in town. Seriously, the only sticker for restaurants I see on cars around here is for the restaurant. And if I even had to think about it further, the only sticker I see on cars around here, because Missourians are horrible about stickers, is for their restaurant. He agreed to talk about their journey and whether or not they consider themselves farm to fork and the future of good food. Here he is. 
Hey, Lunatics. Welcome back to another episode of Let Them Eat Grass. Uh, I'm your host, Austin Williams, and with me today is Ben Parks. He's a chef and owner of a restaurant in Columbia called The Barred Owl. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing very well myself. Uh, I'm glad to catch you at a minute where you, where you have a little bit of time to talk to me because I know you have a really, really busy restaurant. Um, can you kind of talk to me about because uh, your restaurant is easily one of the uh, kind of hottest places to eat in Colombia. Can you tell me a little bit about whether it's your dedication or your menu or kind of what you feel has led to your restaurant's success in the Columbia area? Um, I think I mean, that there's a lot of factors um, that, that went into that. But, um, you know, we, we spent about, uh, well, myself and my two other partners, uh, between the three of us, we have... Um, I want to say somewhere around 50 years of experience. We're, we're pretty young still, but uh, for the three of us, about 50 years doing exactly this kind of thing. So uh, we spent, we did a lot of due diligence in terms of getting, just planning everything out and running all the numbers and trying to uh, really have a solid concept um, from day one. So uh, I think that's really, you know, part of it is all the, the hard work that we put in beforehand, but you know, since we've gotten going, um, you know, the, the community has just been hugely supportive and we have an amazing staff that, that we obviously couldn't do without. Uh, so yeah, between all those things, I think that's kind of what we got going on. Yeah. Uh, when I was a student teacher in Columbia, uh, my, uh, my host teacher, uh, he, his one request for a gift at the end of the semester was a gift certificate to your restaurant. I'd never heard of it before. And I was like, wow, this guy must really like your restaurant. If that's the one thing he asked for. Uh, I'm curious, how would, if some, and there are many people out there who've never heard of your restaurant. If you had to describe the barred owl butchering table to somebody who had never heard of it before, what would you say to them? Um, well, the, the general concept that we had to begin with was having a restaurant that was, um, where everything, the menu was really focused on the idea of a whole animal uh, butchery concept sort of thing. So um, while there were a lot of restaurants around here that, um, that do the local produce and, and get, um, get local meats and that sort of thing, we really wanted to focus on doing, getting our, all of our proteins locally, but getting them from a whole animal perspective. So um, getting whether it's cows or goats or chickens or pigs, whatever they are, getting the whole animal into the restaurant and, and doing the vast majority of the processing in-house. So um, doing all of our own steaks and chops and then uh, really the fun stuff, dealing with all the, the secondary cuts and, and being able to make fun charcuterie and, and kind of more long-term projects with those meats um, and then basing our menu, basing our menu on, on that, on kind of, the availability of the proteins. There's lots of places that we're doing uh, uh, menus and, and concepts based on, you know, local and seasonal availability of produce, but um, nobody was really kind of just dealing with the proteins that they had available. So that's, that's kind of how we approached uh, our concept to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you're really kind of pushing the envelope in terms of sustainability. Um, I'm curious because I've, I've actually encountered a little bit of resistance to this concept the episode is about uh, when I've talked to several restaurants. Some people like it, some people don't. I'm curious, what do you think about the term farm to fork? Do you like it? Do you not? Do you feel like it describes you? Do you feel like it doesn't? What do you think? Well, 
I mean, I guess, you know, I've, I've heard the term and I know it gets thrown around a lot, but I mean, I, I guess I'd answer your question with a question to you in terms of like, what is it in terms of what your listeners understanding is and what your understanding is, what is, what does that mean for you guys? And then I, I think I might be able to answer a little better, but yeah. Um, like as far as, uh, it's been answered for the episode, it's, uh, it's, it's restaurants that have decided to kind of cut out the middleman in terms of, uh, supply. So instead of going to, uh, you know, one of the, the two or three big companies that sure. you can technically get all your food from, they're the, there are the people who go out to local farmers and they, uh, they verify their own supply chain. They're really hands-on with their sourcing. Um, and I think there's all various levels to a farm to fork. I don't think that, um, all, everybody is as radical as everybody else. Like for instance, not all farm to fork farm, uh, restaurants have a whole animal philosophy. So I'd say what separates, you know, a farm to fork restaurant from McDonald's is, you know, the fact that McDonald's doesn't look for local food. They don't look for seasonal food. They don't, uh, they don't look for local farmers. They, they get it from, you know, a huge feedlot out in California somewhere. So it's funny. Um, I guess my, my only, my only problem with the term, I guess, would be just that, you know, that it seems like it's a term that's, that's come up more in recent years, I would say in the last five or six years. Um, and for us as, as owners and, and chefs, it, it was never really, a, um, it was never really a question, I guess. It was just kind of, well, yeah, of course, we're going to try to get as much stuff locally as possible. I think that was just kind of how we were trained and, and kind of the restaurants that we were lucky enough to, to come up in. Um, they was just kind of taken as a matter of fact that that was how you would try to do things as best you could. Um, now, you know, I think we did take it a little bit further in terms of doing it with our proteins. Um, and we do, we do it, uh, with our produce as well, but, um, to be perfectly honest, it's, it's harder, I think, to do with the produce than it is to do with, with your meats, just because the meats are more consistent. You have, you know, people are raising pigs all year round or they're raising cows all year round. Um, so it's almost easier to, to base a menu on, on that in terms from a farm to fork perspective than, um, than your produce because produce does change so much more frequently and you'd end up getting into, you know, the dead of winter where, you know, there's, there's really not a lot available in terms of, of produce. Um, so yeah, anyways, I guess to roundabout answer your question, I mean, it's definitely a, a it's definitely a term and definitely a philosophy that we, I would say we, we definitely embrace it. There's not, uh, um, you know, and there's a couple reasons that I think we found that we, we support that kind of philosophy. And, it, um, you know, there's definitely some quality issues you have, uh, you know, you, you have a more direct connection to what the quality of the food that you're getting is. Uh, whereas if we're ordering from a Cisco or U S foods or whoever it might be, um, then you just, you never really know what you're going to get. And there's really very little recourse if it isn't what you expected. Um, we have good sales representatives that if, you know, if we get a, a bad case of, uh, that, I don't know, celery or something like that, though, you know, we can get our money back on it, but you know, there's still a lot that went into getting that case of, uh, of rotten celery into our door if that happened to be um whereas those kinds of things happen locally you can 
you know, there's not as much that went into it, getting it to your door sort of thing. And most of that spoilage is a result of it being, you know, being harvested however many weeks before it actually shows up to you. So you get, you know, you get a fresher product, product, there's less, less waste and that kind of thing. I understand. So, kind of, if if I could summarize what you just said, it kind of sounds like like with understanding that you know you guys were doing what you were doing before the farm to fork concept really took hold, and so even if so, notwithstanding the possibility, I don't know. It it, it kind of sounds like that the term and the concept almost delegitimizes like how passionate you guys were before the concept came around like yeah that, notwithstanding I think oh go fair. ahead we, i mean we i've always the you know i've been an executive chef in several restaurants for um uh yeah almost 10 years now in in that role and uh josh my business partner has has been doing it just as long um and that's one of the things with our menu you know we we've always tried to shy away it kind of rubs us the wrong way when we would write things like uh you know write a dish that said like you know house made this or local that or whatever it is because that that implication is that you know everything else that you're doing isn't uh isn't made from scratch or isn't local or isn't made in house um when you know so much of what we if you know so much of what we have is sourced in that way but you know you start writing local or organic on on every item on your menu that is local um and it just it gets you start seeing that word pop up in print a lot and it doesn't look great and then it just kind of uh yeah it it sort of discounts or delegitimizes everything that doesn't have that word even if you just you know you know, a lot of menu writing is just based on formatting of the, the Word document. And so it's like, well, maybe I just didn't have room on that line to, to write that it was a locally sourced product. So, yeah, we always kind of, uh, it, we just kind of took it as like a matter of fact, like, yeah, of course, we're going to try to get as much as possible locally or as much as possible, uh, you know, directly from the farmers. Yeah, so I guess not. Yeah, notwithstanding the pickle that the that kind of concept puts you in, like it does create kind of problems for me, for like formatting your menu and even just for like the idea. Well, it's like of course, like I shouldn't have to proclaim it. Like that should be my that should be my base impulse, right? That should be like my my base instinct as a restaurateur. Um, notwithstanding that, like. Would you say that the farm to fork concept is a positive concept and is something that you see being replicated or you see growing in any way? 100% I see it as positive. Um, I would like to see it growing. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that's going to be in the next, you know, 10 years or so in the, in the food system as a whole. Um, But I do think, as far as independent restaurants um, go, I I do see it growing. I do hope it grows. Um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, um, you know, a rest, restaurants are, are a business, and I think everybody that's that's in that business is is just trying to to get by and to 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 make ends meet. So there's always concerns about cost and uh, labor and all that kind of stuff. So um 
think there's always going to be restaurants or restaurant owners that look to their their food cost and look to the way they source their food as the first the first thing to go or the first thing to um, try to cut costs in because there's no there's there's no question that overall it's it is more expensive to get your food directly from the farmers uh, and to bypass that huge you know international supply chain that's that's the global food system um, so you know as a restaurant restaurateur it's easy to look at that and say all right well I could save two dollars a pound on my kale if I just ordered it off the truck so that's the thing that I'm gonna do um, so I, I, I couldn't tell you I don't know in the long term what's gonna happen in terms of that movement uh, you know I, I feel like for for a long time we were going really solidly in that direction um, in terms of the farm to fork thing um, but uh, people are becoming a lot more price sensitive I feel like and, uh, and a lot more business-minded in a lot of ways so depending on uh, I'd also say that we're, you know there's a lot a lot more pushback like uh, or not necessarily pushback but people not being as concerned with uh, sustainability or, or the environmental impact of things it seems like recently maybe that's just in the news more that more people don't yeah that's, care. That's, <laughs> I, I'm really fascinated, fascinated with that actually because like that's I mean part of what we do as a farm I mean you know we you know we believe that we're fighting climate change in the way that we farm sure. but I, I'm I, I would it seems to me like like there's like especially with like the younger and younger generations, there's this like kind of groundswell of people who are concerned about the way we treat our environment. So, like the average person that comes into your restaurant, um, I guess I'm drifting a little bit away from the environment now. But like, would you say that they search you out because you offer this service, because you offer this really intimate farmer uh, connection via your food? Or would you say it's kind of a surprise to most people? I wouldn't necessarily. I, I think, unfortunately, I would say that the majority of our customers probably don't seek us out for that and don't necessarily care once they get in the door. Um, we do have, a, you know, a really great core group of customers that that know what we're all about and come in because of that. Um, but, I, and I think, you know, we're you know, yourself as a farmer, me as a restaurant owner, we're kind of looking at it, at the whole thing from a, you know, from a different perspective. But I think the average, the average American diner or the majority of American diners still aren't necessarily seeking that out or really care for that, for that matter. Um, you know, they're looking for to just have a fun time out and, and, uh, eat some good food and not have to clean up after themselves at the end of the night. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that is, I don't think that's the main focus of most diners still. Gotcha. Do you do you think that that your as as I guess maybe a final question like do you see a positive and a hopeful outlook for doing what you do going into the future or do you see a troubled one that's a that's a, that's a good question um i'm i'm positive about it um at least in our community i think it's it's really it's going the right way still um now in terms of you know 
the dining public as a whole. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm cynical about it, but, um, you know, there's, you know, I, I feel like our, our, our culture is, is not becoming, unfortunately, I don't think they're becoming any more concerned about where their food comes from, at least for the majority of people. Um, I think a lot of people have seen in their minds that they have more important things to worry about, which, you know, in all fairness, there's plenty of, plenty of things to worry about these days, but, um, surely, uh, so I think that kind of falls by the wayside and, and they look at it and they say, well, it's still, you know, um, you go to, you know, the average person goes to a supermarket and, um, you can, you can look at the produce section and, you know, the, by all you look at it and you see the organic carrots right next to the regular carrots and the regular carrots look just as good and they're half as half the price so i think that most people are still looking at things that way now that being said you know we're at least in columbia we're um we have a great farmer's market here and people that's gotten bigger and bigger over the last few years especially and um that's still on the upswing um but you also have you, you, know, you still have a lot of people that, um, you know, and we deal with it at our our restaurant for sure. We, you know, people come in and say, "Well, why would I, why would I pay that when I can go to the supermarket and get it for this cheap, or why can I, or I can make it for this little?" And um, you know, there's still there's still some lack of understanding there, and I, I don't know. I think what um, uh, at least from the restaurant perspective, the, a lot of the stuff that's coming up in terms of uh, changes in the labor market, um, increases in minimum wage and that kind of thing is going to force a lot of restaurateurs hands where the produce didn't. So that, you know, the restaurant as a restaurant mm. owner, you have that choice of buying yeah. more expensive local produce or buying cheap stuff. And, um, then you make your menu price that people come in or they don't come in. Um, and, it's hard for us to justify, I mean, it isn't hard to justify, but it's hard to explain it to customers that, you know, we have to charge this much more for a dish because we paid more for the raw product because we believe that it's the right thing to do. And so you're going to have to pay for it. Well, that, you know, we're, we're still kind of playing catch up. I think restaurants in general playing catch up on uh, pricing when it comes to that philosophy of food. Um, but now in the next couple of years is, is, you know, a lot of municipalities, plenty included are increasing minimum wages and stuff like that. That's one that you, you know, as a restaurant owner, you're not going to have a choice about that. You're still, you're going to have to pay all of your people, you know, 30, 40% more than you're paying them right now in 2019. Um, and you're going to have to increase your minimum prices. And so that's, um, you know, if there were more, I don't think there's a way to force people to, um, you know, source a certain percentage of their product from within a hundred miles or whatever it would be. Um, but it is one, just one of those things from a restaurant perspective that falls by the wayside because you don't have to do it. And now as a business owner, you have things like, you know, increases in utility costs or, or increase in minimum wage and you, you have to, you have to deal with that. So I'm, a, I'm concerned. That would be my concern, I guess. And something that could set that back is that as restaurant owners have these increased fixed costs in their labor and in their other overhead, um, that they'll look at how they're sourcing their, their 
their food um, as one of the first things to go. So that's that's a concern. I don't know how that's gone down in other places uh, where they've done these minimum wage increases. Um, you know, by all accounts, it's increased uh, increased their employee satisfaction, increased productivity, and all this kind of stuff. But I don't know if that's um, I don't know at what cost that's happening on the bottom line for the restaurants and if they're making changes or making cuts to you know the quality of their, their sourcing or that kind of thing to make up for that. So I don't know. That'll be interesting. Yeah, I, I honestly would never have thought of that. That's, that's a very potentially unfortunate, unintended consequence yeah, of yeah. Uh, rising labor costs. Well, well, but, you know, people, that, that's the thing, you know, restaurants, because people have such a, an intimate relationship with food and they make their own food and they, they it's something they do at home uh, more often than they do out, at least most people, um, their people are, are insensitive to price changes in restaurants and they look at it, it. It's very hard not to see it as just, I pay this at the grocery store, why should I pay that much uh, when I go out to eat? But you know, people don't, it's hard to, you know, you're not paying for that. You're paying for an experience. You're paying for the plates and the glasses and, uh, the people to serve on you and, and to clean up after you and do your dishes. And you're paying, you're paying to not have to do it at home basically. And, um, I think most, not most people, but there's still a really large population of people that don't see dining out in that way. They just see it as, um, you know, something, something they do on a special occasion and um, why should they have to pay that much more than they do when they make something at home. So until we can get people kind of uh, to come to terms with that, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a tough road, I think. You make a very good point. Well, I want to, I want to end on a positive note if I can. And that's just, I just want to point people to you guys since I love what you're doing. Um, I'll, I'll let you give a plug on your own, but they're, uh, if you ever find yourself, any you lunatics out there in Columbia, Missouri, if you're near downtown and you're on Broadway, they're right there. Yeah. Um, they're really close. They're worth supporting. Uh, ben, do you want to say anything about rest- your restaurant? Yeah, just that, uh, you know, we just had our three-year anniversary uh, a couple weeks ago, so uh, we really do appreciate you know, all the support that we've gotten. I want to point out also that we do have, uh, not in addition to the restaurant, we have a, a retail space as well. I don't know if you were aware of that. Um, but, uh, you know, just attached to the restaurant, we have a little retail butcher shop and, uh, charcuterie that, uh, you we can, we've got all of our, you know, we do, um, I want to say 40 to 50 different, um, charcuterie items between salamis and pâtés and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we do some really cool stuff. So, you know, if you can't make it in for a full meal. Absolutely. And it's also a way that you can actually kind of almost directly support farmers because our eggs actually were sold like directly out of your um your butcher shop uh you could just it's like a way that not coming to the farm but just picking them up just the same thanks so much for being on the show ben (laughs) which one are you I created lots of extra content for you on my Patreon page if you want a deeper dive into my life and the world of regenerative agriculture. I need your support to keep doing this. Depending on how much you want to give, you might either be a brood of hens, guard pups, a flock of sheep, or a herd of cows. 
Personally, I'm a sticker fanatic. I have a Hydro Flask water bottle on display in my home covered with about 100 stickers from every corner of Colorado. It's one of my most prized possessions. I created a special offer for my fellow sticker fanatics where you'll get a high quality sticker of the podcast logo in the mail if you pledge your support to me on Patreon. Put it on your water bottle, the back windshield, your laptop, a guitar case, or a street light if you're really feeling gutsy. I know it's only taken like six months for me to get it together, but it's been kind of busy here. My dairy cows definitely consumed most of my day, and I just recently dried them off. I have so much time, I barely know what to do with myself. This podcast isn't a super slick production. It's just me in a dark basement in the wee hours of the morning. I need your financial support to keep producing this. If this show means anything to you, if you find some value in it, please consider donating. However you came to find this podcast, your support, any support would be greatly appreciated. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or want to sponsor a future one, shoot me an email to austin at letthemeatgrass.org. I might even include your question along with my answer at the end of my next episode. If you thoroughly enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or download it on whatever podcast directory you use. If you're using iTunes and are feeling mighty generous for the next five minutes of your life, please rate it and leave a review. The more reviews I get, the better my chances of being featured in a spotlight. And as self-serving as that sounds, the more attention this podcast gets means that I get to improve the production quality for you. Production assistance was provided by the kissable Kelly Williams. That's my wife. Music was performed by the bodacious Brandon Nelson. If you like Scandinavian folk music, you can find his album Old Yarns by Eloin. That's E-L-O-I-G-N at Bandcamp. Cover art was drawn by the radical Rebecca Rabin. And sound engineering was done by the jubilant Jeffrey Hook. If you want any of these marvelous people to help you with your projects, just let me know. That's all I have for now. Stay with me, won't you?